it's Loom Group's Andrea Lay, Backview's Melissa Burdick, the wizard of Woodland Hills Shree, and I'm PVSB from Flywheel, a division of Omnicom, and I'm coming to you today from the Catskills. Be playing Heckinger's Tuesdays and Thursdays. Before we get to the CPG Guys episode you've downloaded, it's the week of May 6th, and it's time for the Fresh Four, for curated news stories from the past week. We find them dependably intriguing. We hope you do too. We're brought to you through our partnership with Retail Wit, your one-stop shop for retail industry intelligence news, retailwit.com. It's retail right now. Over to you, Shree. In case you're wondering what this background is, I'm at, I'm at my father-in-law's house all the way in Chennai, India for the next couple of weeks. So what's the message of the week? Kroger Precision Marketing strikes a partnership with none other than Yahoo DSP. So Yahoo DSP advertisers now have access to KPM's audiences for both reach and measurement. Partnership marks KPM's second DSP partnership since last fall and ushers in a new focus on commerce media for Yahoo advertising in particular. Collaborations like this one will define the next phase of growth in retail media as retailers recognize the limitations of monetization on their own digital properties and seek incremental growth by expanding offsite. This is said by Sara Marzano, principal analyst at eMarketer. For advertisers, the delayed but still impending deprecation of third-party cookies, which is now on its way, continues to underpin every decision regarding digital advertising dollars. So solutions that safeguard their investments against that hold increasing appeal. Over to you, Andrea. Hello, Fresh 4 listeners. Walmart adds a new grocery line to its private brand's portfolio. Walmart has announced a new private label grocery brand called Better Goods. The line includes 300 items spanning categories such as frozen, dairy, snacks, beverages, pasta, soups, coffee, and chocolate. With most items priced under $5, Better Goods focuses on three key components, culinary experiences, plant-based, and made without. The retailer said Better Goods marks not only its largest private food brand launch in two decades, but also its fastest grocery brand brought to market. Over to you, Melissa. Thanks, Andrea. Uh, so, Savemark companies roll out in-store retail media networks. It's not enough that we have online. Now we're moving to in-store retail media networks. The Savemark companies plans to roll out in-store connect, an in-store retail media network powered by Quad Graphics Inc. To start, 16 of the grocery company stores will have digital screens, kiosks, end caps, shelf screens, and vertical banners throughout, allowing CPG partners to showcase promotions, product information, and recommendations to shoppers. The program will eventually roll out to all the Savemark companies, approximately 200 stores. This is Savemark's latest retail media effort, coming almost a year after a launch of its own retail media network. Over to you, Peter. Thanks, Melissa. Rite Aid expands Uber Eats' partnership for alcohol delivery in eight states. Nearly 1,000 Rite Aid stores will now offer alcohol delivery via retailers' expanded partnership with Uber Eats. Customers of legal drinking aid can get delivery from select stores in California, Idaho, Michigan, New York, Ohio, Oregon, Virginia, and Washington. Quote, our collaboration and trusted partnership with Uber Eats underscores our commitment to meet the evolving needs of our customers and providing a seamless digital shopping experience complements their busy lives, unquote, said Jeannie Walden, Senior Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer at Rite Aid, the U.S.'s third largest pharmacy retailer. That's it for the Fresh Four. Now on to the CPG Guys episode that you've downloaded. Welcome to another episode of Consumer Engagement in an Omnichannel World. Our co-hosts, Sri Rajapalan and Peter V.S. Bond, 
explore how brands and retailers engage with consumers in store, online, and everywhere in between. And now, here are Shri and Peter. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Consumer Engagement in an Omnichannel World. I'm your co-host, Peter V.S. Bond. I'm also the Vice President of Retail Strategy at Power of Use. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host. He's a CPG e-commerce luminary. He's an entrepreneur in his own right. Uh, please uh, join me in welcoming my co-host, Sri Rajgopalan. Sri, how are you? Thank you so much, Peter. And we can't wait to get started today as we have a special guest for you, Anil Agarwal, the man himself. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about our guest today, too. I've known him for 17 years. I even worked for him for a hot minute. He is a self-described seven-time startup CEO. Most recently, he launched a series of omni-channel trade conferences known as Shop Talk and Grocery Shop. And late last year, he and his partners who founded that sold it to the Hive Group for an enormous amount of money that I can't even begin to fathom, but good on him. And I'll finish by saying that were it not for the pandemic, we would most certainly be conducting this podcast interview at uh, Tableside at his permanent uh, spot at Keene Steakhouse in, in, uh, near Herald Square in Manhattan. So with that, please join me all in welcoming Anil Agarwal. Anil, uh, thank you for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Peter, Shree. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we're very excited to have you on board. Uh, we love your conferences. I think you know, Anil, I, when I attended the 2018 grocery shop event, I penned an article on LinkedIn about how game-changing it was. And I, we're just so excited to be able to talk to you about, about what's going on there and, and how that all came about. But what I wanted to do was start off with just getting a background on you personally and what led you in this direction. Back in the, in the late 80s, you graduated from college. You went into accounting. You decided to get your JD at Boston College, you are Boston University, pardon me, don't want to make that mistake. At BU, you then went to clerk for a state Supreme Court justice in Pennsylvania, joined after that a few law firms in MA, and suddenly you get the startup bug. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what led you uh, to get into the prepaid financial services business after having gone a much more traditional MA route in? In, in the legal profession. Sure, we're going way back and I'm happy to do that and uh, share some of that early journey with you guys. Sure. Um, you know, it wasn't as much of a change as it appears to be. I grew up in a very entrepreneurial family. Uh, I remember as early as 11 years old, coming home from school, calling my dad who um, owned and ran a, a plastics manufacturing business in London and asking him if he could come pick me up and, and take me to the factory with him. Um, and it was really a way of life for us. He would bring home uh, various products that they would uh, create in the factory. They were mostly, it was mostly costume jewelry. Uh, and my mom and a, and a team of, a small team of people at the house would package uh, the costume jewelry up and my dad would be out selling it to everything from major retailers to vendors and flea markets. Um, so, um, the, the entrepreneurial bug actually bit me really early on. Uh, although if you look at my, uh, uh, um, experience and education in the, uh, in the nineties, it might not seem that way. 
what I did was, um, you know, wanted to get a good solid education. In fact, in the early 90s, I, um, when I was applying for law school, had thought about applying uh, to business school and getting an MBA. Uh, but there was a recession in 1990 and, and 91, and there was a lot of question about um, how useful an MBA uh, was, especially coming out of the uh, roaring 80s. Uh, so uh, I decided that uh, law would probably be uh, a better education, and, um, uh, and I did that and decided to go back to school all as a premise to eventually go into business. And, um, and actually my first business was, uh, a, it's not on my LinkedIn profile and, um, it's going way back and I don't talk about it a whole lot, but I actually started a agribusiness in Kenya, uh, when I was 27 in 1997, it became one of the largest farming operations, uh, in East Africa. And, uh, it produced specialty vegetables for, um, air freight to the European market. So, um, so it wasn't as much of a shift from uh, from being an accountant and being a lawyer, uh, neither of which I really admit to that much, and most people don't know that part of me, uh, which I'm entirely happy about. Uh, um, but uh, it's not wasn't that much of as much of a uh, change in direction as it might appear to be. Great! Wow! Wow! First of all, Anil, thank you again for <laughs> joining us today. Having spoken on many of the trade shows that you've actually started, whether as a keynote or whether as a uh, panel guest or, you know, one of the classes, the master classes that I've actually given at the shows, it's an honor to have you today. But as I think through what you just said, agro-business in Africa, and then at some point, I'm sure I've heard you say that you did Hillary Duff gift cards. Take us through the journey of how you got from agro-gift cards to Hillary Duff gift cards from agro businesses in Africa to Hillary Duff gift cards to omni-channel retail trade shows, which came to be known as Shop Talk and Grocery Talk. Just give us the journey. Give us the scoop here. Sure. So I guess you're talking about a 15-year period there. So if I were to spend even 30 seconds on each year, that would be a seven-minute uh, answer. I'll, I'll try and keep it shorter than that. We'll take Although it. I am, <laughs> I am known for squeezing... 15-minute discussions into an hour. Um, but let me give it a shot here. So when, um, you know, I remember sitting uh, in Bunda in, in uh, Tanzania uh, at, uh, at a, a city bank um, uh, in a car uh, and, um, and thinking, you know, when I get, and this is in 1999, and I, and I thought when I go back uh, to the U.S., um, I really want to start on that entrepreneurial journey uh, full-time. And, uh, and it seemed like uh, the absolute right time to do it because of, the, uh, what, uh, because of everything going on with technology, with the internet, and with dot-coms at the time. So as someone who had always wanted to be an entrepreneur, it felt that this was really the right time. The question was, what do you do? And what do you do in the face of what appeared to be an endless amount of opportunity and possibility? So I worked through a lot of different um, business models. Uh, I did a lot of research about the different types of companies that were being created at the time. I, I went to a lot of uh, uh, new media and internet events myself. 
And, uh, and ultimately, what I settled on was uh, using the existing payment networks, Visa, MasterCard, Amex, and Discover, to automate payments outside of the traditional uses of those networks, which were uh, deposit access and, and credit access with traditional debit cards uh, and credit cards. Um, using those payment networks in new use cases by internet enabling them. Now, I wouldn't have been able to tell you in 1999 or 2000 in that kind of articulated way exactly what we were doing, but in retrospect, that is probably the best way to describe it. So when you talk about creating you know, Hillary Duff gift cards, um, the, the use of these payment networks to create um, uh, gift cards that can be sold online or uh, even sold on J-hooks at, at, at retail stores um, was one of those use cases. There were many others. We, were the, we created a technology company that allowed for these products to exist. Um, that technology held the balance on the card so that when the card was used uh, at a merchant and that, that transaction was routed to us to be approved or uh, declined, uh, we had um, various front, uh, uh, user-facing uh, front-end um, capabilities that allowed people to check balances and engage with their accounts. So we created a, a comprehensive, um, uh, what is called issuing side uh, processor. And we were the first uh, processor to do things like um, create uh, <coughs> um, flexible spending account cards, uh, where you could use uh, your flexible spending accounts directly at a healthcare or transit uh, provider. Uh, and we would reconcile on those on the back end with payroll uh, that was another use case uh, that we did. Uh, the use of, of these products in the incentives industry, um, what's become known as general purpose reloadable cards uh, that uh, are used by uh, mostly by people who don't have access to traditional credit uh, or might be maxed out on their credit lines or, or frankly don't even have access to traditional uh, banking services. Uh, we did a, an example of that is we did a uh, uh, a program with Russell Simmons, uh, where we, we created the Rush Card, and uh, and there were many unique components to the types of products we were creating. For example, with the Rush Card, um, we needed the ability to be able to load that card uh, with cash offline, and so we did an integration into MoneyGram, and we became MoneyGram's largest New York area client, loading Rush Cards. So. Um, I love the reference to the Hillary Duff card. Uh, Peter, I remember us working on that together. It's a yeah. great memory, so I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, no kidding, Peter didn't, that, Peter didn't mention that to me, that he actually worked on the Hillary Duff gift cards with you. He did, and many others. In fact, this was one of the areas of specialty that, that Peter had, which was uh, uh, co-branding uh, gift cards with uh, celebrities. Uh, and doing licensing deals and, and other things to create a whole new product set. Yeah, I, I still have my Elvis Presley gift cards framed and they hang on the wall in my office. So You know yeah, I'm going to want to see those. Those were fun times. As do, as do I. Well, Anil, after, after well, selling that business to Tesis and launching their prepaid division, you spent some time at Google, you created an industry association for prepaid, even... Uh, a number of other activities around there. And then this shift into omnichannel retail. Where did you see the opportunity? How did that come about? That is a great question. So 
this experience that I had in creating what is a set, what was essentially an entirely new product line of financial services. Obviously, we weren't the only ones doing it. There were uh, some uh, other, you know, many great companies, in fact, that were, were doing that kind of pioneering. Uh, but one of the things that became evident to me was that there are some things that individual individuals or individual companies can accomplish, but there are some things that are done better if you act collectively. And um, and and so one of as you you mentioned it earlier, one of the things that I did in this particular sector um, of of what's become known as prepaid network branded prepaid cards um, was I created a trade association to bring the industry together uh, to help inform you know, media and consumer groups about um, the utility and usefulness of these products to help educate legislators and regulators uh, about the products and, um, and, and work on things like, you know, disclosures for, for the industry that we could all get behind uh, that would be uh, fair for consumers. So my first experience in really community building activities, let's call it more broadly, uh, was creating um, a, a trade show, a publishing business, and a nonprofit trade association uh, for this segment of financial services. And um, after you know, the sale of that, this particular technology company, starting another one, and then selling that one to Google, as you just mentioned, uh, that happened all over again. This time, it wasn't about uh, a specific segment of financial services, it was all of financial services. So in 2011, uh, I look back at what had happened um, in financial services over the last decade, and specifically uh, the impact on uh, financial services of the great financial crisis. And you know, if you were to go back before the financial crisis and you were at a cocktail party and you were to talk to anyone about being in, uh, in FinTech, that was a surefire signal for them to go refresh their drink. Um, <laughs> FinTech, FinTech today is one of the hottest segments of tech. And, and the great financial crisis um, is one of the key uh, events that um, facilitated that um, transition. And let me just uh, explain, uh, take a minute to explain uh, why that's the case. Um, you know, up until uh, the financial crisis, uh, it was really hard to innovate at the head of the demand curve in financial services. Uh, what I described in terms of, of prepaid, what others were doing um, in the late 90s and early 2000s relative to financial services can best be described as long-tail innovation. Um, they were not reinventing the core bank account experience or banking experience or traditional credit card. Um, they were basically taking uh, uh, heavily paper-based and and manual processes within financial services and automating them. And that was the definition of FinTech. Coming out of the financial crisis with the creation of things like um, the C uh, CFPB with uh, the enactment of Dodd-Frank, um, financial services uh, started thinking uh, more openly about innovation, about the consumer, and about how they needed to change um, their, their products, their consumer experiences, um, their uh, relationship with the consumer around things like fundamental fairness. Um, and so you saw a, a, a change in uh, organizations and their, their willingness, uh, but I would even go further and say need to innovate. So in 2011, 
um, using that same experience that I had in community building uh, in the prepaid world, uh, I started an event called Money 2020 to bring together the broad financial services and payments industry so that they could work collectively on creating a future that, um, uh, represent, that, that integrated innovation uh, far more than, than the, in, for the next 10 years than they had inter integrated in the past 10 years. And so, uh, so Money 2020 was uh, an incredible success. Uh, I, I think it uh, was, um, for a long period of time, probably the single most important industry-wide initiative uh, in bringing people together to collaborate to create this new future of payments and financial services. Um, and, and I like to think, because a lot of people have, have told me so, uh, that actually it also served as a catalyst for the development of, of, the, of the fintech industry. So, you know, Anil, I was part of PepsiCo back then in 2011 when you started it. And I remember we used to even have attendees from PepsiCo Financial Services going to the event, which I think is nothing short of extraordinary what you accomplished there with Money 2020. Well, I appreciate that. And thanks for being part of it so early on. Um, we sold Money 2020 in 2014. Um, it was done as an initiative to really help bring the industry together as uh, uh, someone who worked in the industry, uh, my vision for what it should be was, uh, was to be the show that I would like to go to. And so once it was you know, established, um, uh, it, it seemed to make sense that uh, it was time to move on. Um, that was 2014. Uh, in 2015, uh, I sat down and thought, you know, what should I do next? And what I, what I realized was that, that, the, that the same thing that happened in FinTech and financial services in terms of transformation of the industry was beginning to happen on the other side of the coin, the commerce side of the coin. So, um, so I started looking into what are all of the different ways that the industry is innovating when it comes to retail and e-commerce. And just as importantly, um, where is the industry focused right now? What are they doing? Uh, how are they embracing that innovation? Or are they not embracing it to the extent that they should be? And in fact, what I found was something very, very similar to FinTech in 2011. And so innovation in retail, from my perspective, sitting down in 2015, um, looked like innovation in retail uh, in financial services in 2011. And so I felt that it there was the same opportunity to bring to the retail and e-commerce industry the kind of community um, and benefit of creating community um, that, that uh, I had been, been able to bring to the fintech world through Money 2020. And that was the genesis of uh, Shop Talk. So that finally connects the dots, Peter and Sri, of uh, how do you get from the Hillary Duff gift card to creating <laughs> shop talk? Brilliant. What a, what a Brilliant. fascinating story, Anil. But if I think about shop talk, you know, I was at the, I've been to each one of these virtually every year you've had them. And if I think about the success you've had in scaling shop talk, and I look at all the other industry events, because I've probably been to every industry event in e-commerce that possibly exists, starting with the ones from Kantar to retail net, planet retail, you, you name it, none of them have experienced the success 
that you did, your attendee base grew from about 500 in year one to thousands within like two years and then literally peaking somewhere closer to the five digit mark in like four years. What do you think went into that success? Like why did, why did Shop Talk succeed extraordinarily well compared to the others? Does it have to do with like consumer centric thinking? Like what was on your mind that got it to scale so quickly? It had to do with the culmination of a few things. Uh, one was, I think, from an in, uh, uh, looking at it internally. Uh, uh, the, one of the reasons was that we weren't trying to start another event. We were trying to create a new community that we felt would be critical. And, um, and so when I described to people what we were doing, uh, they heard me describe uh, the creation of a new event rather than really the creation of a new community mm. um, for the most part. And so, um, so when people would, would focus on that and ask me at the very beginning, uh, so how does Shop Talk compare to other events in retail? Um, I would simply answer it by saying, I don't know, I've never been to a retail event. We didn't create Shop Talk by going to other retail events and thinking we could do a better job than everybody else does. Um, the, the entire premise of Shop Talk uh, was to bring together everyone from established retailers and brands uh, to startup D2C companies, startup tech companies, established tech and internet companies, uh, but also um, Wall Street in the form of sell-side analysts, uh, the media, the investment community, uh, and, and get them doing, help them to do all of the things uh, that they were already doing, but, but way less uh, efficiently, um, you know, in a distributed uh, fashion, uh, which was create the future of, of, of retail um, through community. Uh, so inward looking, I think that part of the reason, a main part of the reason we were successful is that we just had a different mission from the very beginning. I think the second uh, reason we were successful is that we looked at what was happening in terms of the conversation that people were having. And at the time in 2015, the retail conversation was dominated by Omnichannel. And Omnichannel was focused mostly on systems integration, um, inventory alignment around the offline channel and the online channel. You know, offline and online had been created as two distinct channels, and that was okay before the smartphone, but once the smartphone really gained traction, uh, it needed to be a single unified experience. Um, but in 2015, that probably represented 20% of what the retail industry should have been focused on, uh, but, it, but it was 80% it was of the conversation, and it was crowding out the rest of um, the opportunities and challenges uh, that retail had. And what we wanted to do with Shop Talk was help reset the conversation. And, uh, and so... Uh, that was also something that I think it was difficult for people to understand um, uh, early on, and certainly in 2015, when we first introduced Shop Talk as something we felt was critical for the industry. But it became pretty obvious to people, really starting in Q1 of 2016. If you look at pretty much any um, stock price chart of any major retailer, uh, with some uh, key exceptions, uh, starting in Q1 of 2016, uh, is really when when um, uh, retail started uh, it, its uh, decline. And by decline, what I mean is that kind of a, a period of, of transformation 
that started with um, going from a period of certainty to a period of uncertainty and creating a lot of confusion. So for example, you know, up until um, that period of time, uh, if you wanted to grow as a retail business, uh, the path was kind of clear. You opened another store. Uh, but you don't open uh, too many stores when you've opened one too many store, stores. You've, you, you've, uh, you realize you've, uh, you, you've overstored uh, when you've created way too many uh, uh, stores, way more stores than you actually need. And so 2016 represented kind of this, this tipping point of a reckoning of things that people had done in the, in the past that was overbuilding, overstoring, um, you know, a reckoning of the mall experience. Uh, but it was uh, at the same, that was happening at the same time as, you know, the rise of digitally native brands, as more consumers were shifting to shopping on their mobile devices. So you had this unique convergence of factors where if you add in what we were trying to accomplish, um, you had a unique period in time in 2015 and 16 in retail, just like you did with FinTech in 2011 and 2012, um, for, for the industry to really rethink um, uh, how do we work together? What does our future look like? How do we disrupt ourselves um, or let others disrupt us? Uh, and so, you know, in, in an engineered way, I guess we were at the right place at the right time. Um, part of how we looked at it was that the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. So one of the ways that we communicated to the industry that the world was going to change was simply to look at what um, the hundreds of venture-backed companies that were already creating the future were doing, uh, to organize that information and then present it back to the industry as, as a, a possible view of what the future uh, would look like. And what we found was that resonated. Um, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it resonated, Shri, um, I'm going to correct some numbers here, even more than, than, than you mentioned, the growth of shop talk was actually um, greater uh, than, the shop, than the growth of Money 2020. Uh, we had 3,000 people at our first event in shop talk. And, and uh, our last event, which was the fourth held in 2019, unfortunately we haven't uh, and won't have one uh, in person this year, uh, had grown to almost 9,000. And we were well on track to be past 10,000. Uh, for, two, for March 2020 when we had to cancel the event at the beginning of that month. Oh, I would be surprised if it wouldn't have hit the closer to the 15,000 because, you know, listening to you, I dissected quite a few words of wisdom you've passed on here to entrepreneurs. One was you don't need to copy, do something unique, but you also were very humble when you said right place, right time. To me, the difference between success and no success as an entrepreneur is having the savviness to know when it's the right place at the right time. In 2015, I remember sitting at those NACDS conversations when every SVP and EVP of merchandising would specifically ask about Omnichannel. It was early in the game. It was exactly what you said, which was a lot about IT and the systems and technology. And the third thing I hear you said is the word community, which we will definitely talk about later. But the difference between creating just another event to be there and capture share, which our industry obsesses over that metric versus creating a community and giving people exactly what they want to hear. Very different from just another event. And it's just fascinating to hear that. You know, it's interesting what you say about um, advice to entrepreneurs. Um, you know, I think that there is a, there can, that there is a temptation at least 
uh, to try to benchmark against the competition. And, um, you know, my view of entre entrepreneurship is, is very simple, that, that uh, things that are done today can be done uh, 10 to 100 times better. Um, you are unlikely to figure out a 10 to 100 times better way of doing something by looking at what someone does today. You're way more likely to figure that out by looking at how things should be. Uh, and that means focusing instead of on the competition, on things like the customer or the consumer or yeah. more global shifts and trends in values, for example, um, that, um, that different generations have. Uh, and when you, when you see where, where things uh, are heading, uh, you can build for that. And, uh, and it is unlikely that if you have someone who's established uh, that's been doing things the way that they've done them for uh, and being successful with it for for quite some time, uh, they're unlikely to be thinking that way. And so my view is that unless you can create something that is at least 10 times and hopefully uh, um, uh, more like 100 times better than what's already out there, uh, then it's just simply uh, not the best use of your time. There's probably other things you should be doing. So, Neil when I think about creating uh, a community in the omni-channel commerce space, the parts of the ecosystem are the retailer, the manufacturers, and the solution providers. And it's kind of a trickle down. The, the solution providers show up if the brands are there, and the brands show up if the retailers are there. I think what impressed me most about Grocery Shop and the very first launch of that is, you didn't just have a couple of big retailers and big titles, you had a whole lot of them. And I'm really curious to understand how you were able to get such uh, influencers in this space to want to participate in this community. I think it was a few things like anything else, you know, probably doesn't come down to just one thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the things that I saw was that large retail definitely followed startup retail. Um, and same, same is true with brands, manufacturers. Um, at the very beginning, I made about 100 phone calls to the CEOs of, of uh, some of the best known and most disruptive brands from Casper to The Honest Company, Stitch Fix. Um, and, and in some cases, these are, you know, hybrids as, as well, but, but a broad range of, of retailers and brands. Um, and, and I remember out of those first hundred phone calls, it didn't take long for uh, the CEOs to, to buy into what we were creating with ShopTalk. It resonated with them. They felt that it was, it was needed. And they were willing to sign on. Uh, at the very first ShopTalk, if I recall correctly, we ended up with about 135 CEOs wow. of these types of companies. And, and I think that resonated with traditional retail, um, not with all retail at the same time in equal measures, uh, but over time uh, it did. We saw you know, the early adopters uh, be very curious with that, want to learn from that from large retail. But we also saw laggards. I had you know, several conversations with very prominent CEOs of retailers um, who were very late in understanding um, what was happening in retail. Um, and I understood that through their reaction 
uh, to uh, Sharp Talk and their willingness to support it. Um, I had you know, CEOs that I had asked to speak in year one um, declined to speak, uh, buy tickets and attend uh, uh, to join the event as an attendee in year two. Um, and so, uh, so I think that part of it was um, this critical mass of the startup community. I think some of it, as I mentioned, was that by 2016, um, Q1, right before we held the first show, um, there was already um, a, a sense within retail that things were about to change dramatically. And so individuals responsible for digital, for e-commerce, for innovation, you know, it took a little bit longer to get people from things like store operations on the brand and manufacturer side. Um, I think that there was a sense that some of the more traditional and older brands were, um, were not resonating in terms of their authenticity um, and other reasons with consumers that the way that they had in the past. And so there was this, you know, gradual build of, of people recognizing that we, Shop Talk was perfectly aligned with, uh, with the real changes they were experiencing. Uh, and, and, and it seemed to make sense for them to be part of it. Um, and, and so we not only got amazing, very, very senior level speakers, but the, the attendees um, were C-level. They were EVPs, SVPs, and VPs, uh, and continue to be. So I think it was this combination of, uh, of everything that, that just made sense. Um, and, and our standard for our shows is that we want people to love our shows. Um, and when something's resonating on that level where, you know, they feel that they need help understanding what's going on or they want to showcase and contribute the special things they're doing, uh, they want to be in a peer group of people that are charting, you know, the, the, the future in the same way. I refer to these people, uh, I think of them not as attendees. I don't think of them as, as professionals within retail. I think we live in a world where, um, where these are change makers and that, and that the ability to make change is actually now distributed uh, down to the individual uh, within, uh, even within large companies. And so it's people recognizing that they have the ability to make a really big difference and then giving them um, the tools and platform uh, and experience and access that allows them to engage in that change uh, that they want to undertake. Great. You know, Anil, when I look back at both the community shop talk and grocery talks, I, I think a scale has come by to both of those where having decision makers at the senior most levels has almost become an automatic, where it's created an aura of you weren't at shop talk and grocery talk you really don't belong to the tribe, which, which again, I think is just fascinating how you made that happen. But one of the secret sauces that we've been, Peter and I were kind of discussing of the success of both communities at levels, maybe down the decision maker, maybe at the director level, the senior manager level, the brand manager level, et cetera, has been the hosted meeting programs that you'll have where you have service providers meeting with maybe a given attendee or six times over things of that nature. Tell us a little bit more about how you work that out and why do you feel that it resonates so well with brands, even retailers participate in it. And then obviously service providers are the ones that really want to be in the middle of it. But how does all this come together? I think the hosted retailers and brands program did unbelievably well. And the reason that it did so well uh, was because it solved the problem. 
And, um, and I think that, that the things that scale quickest um, and that get the best feedback that give you the highest NPS score uh, are things that, that address problems where, especially where people knew there was a problem, but nobody ever really did anything about it and that it was going on for a really long time. So, you know, if you take the example of, the, of an exhibit hall, um, you know, if we were to go back to, say, 1995 or earlier than that, um, going to a, a, a trade show, walking through an exhibit hall um, was of incredible value. Uh, you, you know, you would be able to find all the different technology and solution providers that could help you um, uh, run your business more efficiently, um, modernize your business. Uh, you go booth to booth, you're having lots of valuable conversations, uh, you're taking materials uh, back to your office or your home, you're going through them, and, um, and, and, and there's an incredible amount of discovery that is happening. There's an incredible amount of relationship building uh, that, that, is, uh, that was possible. But when you add in the fact that that, that kind of um, discovery and research can be done online, um, uh, means that the utility of an exhibit hall has, has declined um, and, and its role has changed. But for the most part, uh, the approach that an event, event organizers take to creating that exhibit hall um, uh, and the experience that, that, uh, that attendees have hasn't changed. So I think that what happened was that um, exhibit halls had greater value 25 years ago than they do today. I think they're still valuable and I'll talk about that. Um, but the, 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 the role of exhibit halls has changed and their value has changed. Um, but the format hasn't, uh, the approach to creating the exhibit hall hasn't, uh, the approach to um, uh, using the exhibit hall for lead gen has changed the same. And so simply what's happened for, for both sides uh, the buyers who are there looking for solutions, um, the exhibitors that are there uh, selling and promoting their solutions, um, uh, they continue to do the same thing they did 25 years ago, but they're just simply less happy with it. Uh, they get less out of it. Um, it's less productive for them. And so what we did was leading up to our 2018 show, uh, we focused mostly on the exhibitors that we knew um, were there for, to generate leads, uh, the exhibitors that were there to grab the attendee that's walking by and try to sell them something. Um, frequently, these were the exhibitors that had smaller booths. Uh, generally, what we found was that exhibitors with larger booths were there to have meetings with established partners, with existing clients, uh, to showcase new products to the media. Um, and, and lead gen was a, a, a lesser part of the reason that, that they were ex exhibiting. And so we went to uh, over 100 companies that we had already signed uh, booth contracts with. And we said, we've decided to uh, not sell 10 by 10 booths anymore. And I can tell you that people were absolutely shocked. I had a CEO call me up and say, we already put a deposit down on a booth that we were buying. And it's non-refundable, so can we please get our 10 by 10? And I said, look, the intent here was never for you to be out of pocket um, on a deposit to buy a booth. So send me the invoice and we'll reimburse that. Oh, we won't sell you a 10 by 10. And so 
by this time, 2018, um, companies wanted to be part of Shop Talk. Uh, they knew they had to be there. It was a critical part of the broad uh, retail e-commerce professional ecosystem. And so the next natural question for us was, well, if I can't have a 10 by 10, uh, what can I have? And, um, and we said, well, what you're really there to do is meet with companies that you want to sell your solutions to. So we will um, find those people for you and we will arrange, uh, help you arrange the meeting. Um, as you, I'm sure you can imagine, that was met, met with a great degree of skepticism as to whether we would be able to deliver uh, the buy side of that, um, of that experience. So on the other side of it, what we did was we knew that uh, there were a lot of what I call change makers, as I referenced before, throughout the retail industry that would love to come to Shop Talk because it represents this new home for them, this new community that they want to be part of. But because of um, budget limitations or other <clears throat> restrictions, they simply didn't have access to Shop Talk. So what we said to them was that if they would agree to take eight 15-minute meetings, so we were asking for no more than two hours of their time during a four-day period, um, that we would give them a free ticket to the show uh, and we would basically cover their travel expenses and hotel expenses so they could, they could be at Shop Talk budget-free. And our view was to ask for the least and give the most. This is just a basic philosophy of life that I had have, which is, uh, lead, lead with generosity. And that was a big part of what was behind the creation of, uh, of how we all, the implementation uh, of the program, uh, to, to ask very little for, from people and to give, uh, to give them a lot. At the same time, we wanted those meetings to be incredibly valuable uh, to, the, to the hosted retailers and brands as buyers. So we didn't require them to take meetings that they didn't want to take. The meetings were entirely double opt-in they had to agree to them as well. Um, and if that meant that we can only set up, you know, four out of the eight meetings or six out of the eight meetings, then that's on us. We were willing to take that risk. Um, I think we averaged probably about 6.5 meetings per uh, hosted um, uh, retailer and brand. But eventually what we were able to do was bring thousands of, uh, of retailers and brands, in, individuals from retailers and brands into this program we were able to bring hundreds of, of companies selling solutions. We built a completely proprietary platform uh, with uh, 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 what is today is, uh, over a 30-person engineering team uh, in a separate company that I own called Persona Tech. Um, and, uh, and people absolutely loved the um, experience. Uh, it was efficient. It addressed a specific problem. At the, at that, that people were experiencing in the exhibit hall. The other thing that it did was it changed the dyna dynamic of our exhibit hall into a, a place where people were focused on transactions uh, and transactional behavior into more of a community town hall, a place where people felt that they weren't going to get grabbed and, and, and solicited to come into someone's booth, but a place where they could spend time, be comfortable, interact with others, um, walk around, see what new products are being offered, uh, engage with whoever they want to engage with uh, without uh, feeling targeted. And if you talk to the retailers and brands that go to uh, uh, trade shows or go to uh, uh, exhibit halls within uh, more of a conference type show, uh, this will be one of their biggest complaints. 
they will tell you that when they go into the exhibit hall, they turn their badge around. They don't want to be targeted. So we solved a lot of problems while at the same time updating the event format literally overnight uh, by 25 years. This, this, was, this is a problem that has existed that, that frankly continues to exist throughout the retail, throughout the events industry rather, um, and hasn't been fixed for the most part in 25 years. Uh, given my background as a tech CEO, it seemed uh, almost like an incredible opportunity um, to build something that would solve a very low hanging fruit problem uh, and, and really deliver on the mission of creating community. So the way we, we, we look at the Shopport community is that it is an, a broad ecosystem. And within that broad ecosystem, there are very specific marketplaces. And if you were to facilitate the interaction uh, that's, that, um, of those marketplaces within that broad ecosystem, uh, then the whole thing just hangs together better. It works better. People em embrace it more. Um, they value it uh, more. Uh, they're telling you that. In, in the NPS that they're giving you, our NPS mm -hmm. has consistently been above 60, uh, yeah. which we're very happy with. Um, so you're absolutely right. The hosted program was a, a, a key factor in the success of the program. About 50% of the retailer and brand attendees that attend Shop Talk and Grocery Shop come through the hosted program. And the hosted program uh, in 2019, again, the last year we did it, between Shop Talk and Grocery Shop facilitated over 10,000 meetings. Yeah, Neil, I walked into my first show of yours skeptical about my company not investing in a booth. And then after participating in the hosted meeting programs and seeing the pure lead gen, successful lead gen that, that those meetings produced, I was overwhelmed. I said, we need to double down for the next show and invest much more of our our, our, our finances in those hosted programs. So that was, from my standpoint, just a brilliant decision on your part. And you did address some burning issues for all the different stakeholders in that ecosystem. Um, you, you, you took Shop Talk, which was more broadly omni-channel, and then you decided to focus in on one specific commerce vertical grocery uh, why did you take on that particular one? You could have gone after some others. What was it about grocery you saw as a logical first extension? The reason we really focused on grocery is that it is part of the broader retail ecosystem. But when you really look at it more closely, um, it is a very distinct ecosystem. Um, you know, it consists of supermarkets, mass merchants, convenience stores, drug stores, club warehouse stores, discount stores. You know, it's a, it's, it's a broad range of companies um, that are selling um, uh, products um, in very different formats. And so within that industry, you know, where people get their products, um, uh, how they get those products, um, has changed and evolved and people have a lot more options than they used to have. And so um, uh, that industry is, uh, I would say, a very distinct segment from the rest of retail. In addition to that, it wasn't on the same historical innovation and disruption curve. 
So the same way that I, I describe broad retail being, say, four to five years behind fintech, grocery retail was probably two years behind um, broad retail. Um, it, it, is, it was not an early adopter of e-commerce, for example. Uh, and so, um, so there were unique, there was a, a unique community and a unique set of challenges and opportunities. In many ways, that ended up actually being an asset that grocery could leapfrog the rest of retail. It didn't have to go back and, and, and fix the omni-channel um, uh, things that had been done for many years. It was a blank sheet of paper in terms of being able to define a new user and customer experience um, specific to e-commerce and omni-channel. And so we felt that this needed to be a separate conversation, one where you could very easily spend uh, four days digging really deep into the issues that are unique to growth CPG. You know, for example, supply chain. Um, the supply chain is impacted way more immediately as you change the customer experience in grocery than it is, say, in furniture uh, or, you know, many other areas, electronics, many other areas of retail. And so, um, so it was a, an, a sector that was at a different point uh, in, in its innovation. It was a community of types of retailers um, that uh, was uh, evolving. Uh, and, um, uh, and so it made sense to pull this out separately as a separate uh, community, and that's what we did. And, and, and we did that. We announced that in 2018 in the spring, and we held a first show uh, in the fall of 2018. Uh, and that first show uh, had over 2,000 people, which we were uh, very, very happy with. Yeah, you've, you, you vastly underestimated the, uh, the response you would get to that. In fact, uh, you, you basically blew out of all the available space uh, at the hotel you chose. So one of the things, Anil, that comes to my mind is, you know, when I look back on the money 2020 money talk journey, you know, you started in 2011 and then 2017, you had sold it to other investors. So that was about a seven year journey. I look at these two communities, Shop Talk and Grocery Talk. They were born in 2015. By early 2020, within, I would say, four and a half years or so since the two um, communities started and attendees came to when you actually sold it to the Hyde Group. I know you're going to stay involved with both these communities and the industry would really like you to be involved because it looks at you as the leader of these two communities making things happen. But what do you think caused this to happen within less than five years, much faster than money 2020. And how, how did liquidity for you just come by so fast this time around? Well, there's two ways of looking at it. I guess one way of looking at it is that the liquidity was, was fast. Another way of looking at it is it was, um, uh, you know, kind of a reasonable amount of time, but let me, let me take you um, back a little bit. So, um, you know, if you were to talk to anyone um, that I had spoken to about Shop Talk since I created it, the plan was never to really sell it. The plan was actually to keep it. Uh, and so, you know, we sold Money 2020 within two years. That was a quick exit. We ended up keeping uh, Shop Talk for over four years. Um, and, and the reality is that, and I'll share something personal with you here, uh, is that 
um, we had planned to keep Shop Talk. Um, in fact, we were expanding it uh, into doing way more local events uh, with something called Retail Club. Um, we had created a grocery shop and we're really focused on building that. Uh, and uh, in September of 2019, um, my mother passed away unexpectedly. And, um, and it was a moment uh, of reflection for me. Um, you know, it was not something that I had expected to happen. And, um, and my wife, who happens to be my co-founder in, in these businesses, and she was the president um, of uh, both uh, Money 2020 and uh, Shop Talk, um, said to me at the end of September, um, maybe it's time to rethink um, how we spend our time. Um, and, and, and I think she was saying it not only for me, but for herself as well. And so, um, so I committed to her that, that I would make one phone call and that one phone call would be to Hive. Uh, and it would be to the CEO who has been a close friend of mine for, um, for five years. He actually bought Money 2020 when he was at a different uh, company. And, um, and I would ask him if he was interested in buying it, uh, and if he was interested in buying it, um, whether we could quickly come to terms um, and that we would do a short transition period of one year so that we could move on and do other things uh, in, in our lives. Um, and I had that phone call with him. My conversation uh, uh, with my wife was on a Sunday. I had that conversation with, um, with Mark Shashua at Hive on Monday morning and the deal was closed 10 weeks later. Um, so, um, so I think it was a reasonable period of time uh, to keep a business, uh, to grow a business and establish it. Um, it was probably around the same amount of time that I had run the two tech companies that I was involved in, maybe a little bit less, but it was, we kept it for longer than we had kept Money 2020. Uh, and the plan was, was to keep it long term. Um, but with that change that happened uh, in, in our lives and some of the reassessment that we did at that uh, point in time, um, you know, we decided to, to have this conversation. If Mark had said in that conversation uh, that he had not been interested, uh, that he was not interested in buying it, then our agreement was that we would keep it and continue to run it. Um, but he was very anxious to buy it. He had wanted to buy it for a very long time, and, and he wanted to move quickly as well. Uh, so it was as much of a surprise, actually, frankly, I would say more of a surprise uh, to me that we ended up selling shop talk and grocery shop than it probably was to anybody else. Uh, but that was the reason we ultimately decided to do it. So, Anil, shortly into this transition period after the sale, the pandemic hits and it has an incredible adverse effect on trade shows in general. Uh, certainly shop talk, uh, not immune to this. And you ended up with a mechanism where you essentially pushed it out to the slot where grocery shop typically sits in the fall and grocery shop moving to the spring of the following year. Would love to know about what you all are doing to keep brands and retailers and service providers engaged. How are you taking advantage of obviously a digital world to do that? And, and I know you've recently announced a, a new Shop Talk meetup solution. Would love to hear more about how you think that's going to keep engagement alive. Sure. Let me, let me just start off by saying a few words about um, 
shop talk in person this year, which is not happening. We, as you mentioned, had originally pushed it from March to September. Yeah. Uh, but then <clears throat> recently we announced two weeks ago that uh, we're actually canceling it all together this year okay. and, and, and starting it back up in March of 21. Okay. Uh, with shop talk and then having grocery shop back in September of 21. Okay. We hope that those events will happen. Uh, we expect them uh, to happen. Uh, but right now we're living in an, a period of, of incredible uncertainty around COVID-19. And whether it's you know policies and guidelines that come from uh, governments and agencies or uh, you know state, federal, uh, or from venues or cities. Um, uh, but I would say uh, um, most importantly, um, from companies. Uh, ultimately, whether individuals attend uh, professional B2B events uh, is going to be a decision uh, that rests primarily with uh, individuals um, themselves uh, and the companies that they work for, um, no matter what else is going on. I think ultimately uh, the decision is one around safety. Uh, and I think that's something that people take very seriously about themselves. And I think it's something that companies take very seriously about their teams. Um, and we certainly don't want to be putting companies and individuals in a position to have to pick between coming to a show and um, their concern for their safety. Of course. So uh, I think we've acted um, quickly and decisively in terms of canceling or postponing our shows um, for that reason. Um, you know, we think we've acted responsibly. It's become obvious, you know, later on that, uh, that you probably couldn't have had the shows, but I can tell you this, that um, I had a conversation with Hive uh, in, in, in the beginning of March, uh, and they said, Anil, if you still own the show, what would you do? And I said, uh, I would not have the show if I still owned it. I would cancel yeah. it. They said, well, then we're going to cancel it. And at that time, it felt like it was a, a, an option to cancel it. It did not feel like it was the only path forward or it was inevitable that it was going to get canceled. Mm -hmm. Within a week or two of, within a week or so of that, it became obvious that the show couldn't happen. But the point, at the point in, in time when we made the decision, um, it was a choice to not move forward with the show. I think that as we look forward, um, what, what, what the B2B events industry much like other industries on what I call the front line of impact, like airlines, cruise, uh, uh, cruise lines, hotels, um, restaurants. Um, ultimately, these businesses that are impacted on the front lines um, need a greater degree of certainty around COVID-19, uh, its impact, um, uh, uh, its, it, how it's being addressed with therapeutics and a vaccine before those businesses uh, can really ramp back up. And, and, and so the way I look at it is that we are living in this period of uncertainty. Um, it is unclear how long that is going to last. Uh, but one thing I do believe is that we are not <clears throat> at the beginning of the end. We are at the end of the beginning here. Um, there is still a lot that needs to unfold. So we have, we have shifted our attention uh, to uh, creating what I refer to as omni-channel events, um, borrowing a word from the retail industry and using a word that, that, that our communities understand very well. 
and that is a combination of online and offline as representing what the future of the event industry will be. Um, so I think of, um, of integrating technology into offline events as the digitization of events, and I think of, of creating uh, digitally native virtual events as the virtualization of events. So there's a distinction there between digitization and virtualization that I think is important. The way that we're approaching it is, I think, different from how everybody else has approached it. If I were to describe how everybody else has approached it, I would say that, that, that it is being focused on content, um, mostly webinars, um, and, and it has been largely, how do you take what you do offline and put it online? But going back to how I described we created Shop Talk to begin with, which was sit down with a blank sheet of paper and, and, and address the challenges and opportunities and build the product from there. Whether it's something that your customers and clients know that they need or not, um, that should be the starting point. And that's what we did for our virtual events. So our virtual strategy has really been two-pronged. The first has been that instead of simply having speakers talk to um, uh, what is going on in the industry and trends and the types of things that we might even cover on site, we think enough other people are doing that well enough that we don't add a whole lot of value there. Getting back to needing to be you know, 10x to 100x better for us to really be excited about doing anything. Um, and so what we focused on in terms of content was creating a framework uh, that presents the path forward for retail um, in various um, stages uh, as the pandemic continues and as we come out of the pandemic. Um, we, we created that framework as a Google Doc, as a Google Sheet. We shared that. Um, on, it's on our website. Uh, it's something that we update every single day. Uh, our entire content team looks at news of everything from the pandemic to announcements from retailers about specific initiatives they're implementing. And we build that into um, the Google Sheet so that it is, it is always up to date on how things are going to unfold through the various stages. We also included tabs recently um, to represent various scenarios of when therapeutics and a vaccine, for example, uh, might become available. And so our focus on content has been um, a focus on what I call original content that we think provides a tool to the industry that helps them uh, manage through all of the different things they have to manage through all of the different considerations they have when it comes to, um, to uh, uh, evolving their businesses uh, throughout the pandemic. The second area where we have focused uh, is one we announced about two weeks ago. We announced it at the same time that we announced um, that we were going to cancel Shop Talk in September. And that is the creation of, of uh, this concept of a meetup, a Shop Talk meetup. And the basic premise of, of, of the meetup program, uh, which is scheduled to be held October 20th to the 22nd, um, during three half days. So the meetup begins at 12.30 Eastern and ends at 4.45 um, Eastern uh, on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, October 20th, 21st, and 22nd. The goal is to bring thousands of people together, not for content, not for speakers, 
um, and, and not for original content we've created, but instead so that those thousands of people can interact with each other. And, that they, and, and we're designing it in a way so that they can interact with each other across all of the use cases, all of the reasons for which people uh, interact with each other um, all the time uh, in the retail and e-commerce industry, and certainly uh, at our events. And so, um, so it is, you know, maybe one way of describing it is it's the hosted program on steroids. Um, it's not simply an evolution of the hosted program. This again was a sit down with a blank sheet of paper, as I mentioned, and it is a ground up technology build. Obviously, you know, there's, there's a lot we know about how to build these things um, that comes from our experience with hosted. But the reality is that, uh, that we took a look at the retail industry from scratch. Uh, we looked at what kind of data model is needed to represent all of the key people beyond hosted, uh, which, rep which represents, as I mentioned before, a very specific marketplace within retail. Here with Meetup, we're looking at all of the different stakeholders, all of the different things they might do. So for example, uh, it in the Meetup incorpor incorporates the notion of being able to make an announcement um, uh, as part of this, where, um, where companies can uh, make announcements to reach the media. And then some of the meetings that happen during that meetup are companies that are making announcements and media. We already have over 100 um, representatives of the media um, and cell site analysts signed up uh, for the show, uh, for the meetup. So, um, so the way we're looking at it is that if the future is truly omnichannel, it's going to exist both with offline events and online events, then then the online events should represent the greatest utility, the greatest degree of productivity. And that means um, ensuring that they address all of the use cases um, that, uh, 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 that, that people already, uh, are, uh, already, that are already out there and that people already engaged in. Um, so that's the whole concept of Meetup. We're actually very, very excited about it. Uh, since we launched it two weeks ago, over 2,000 people have signed up. The, the, it, it's really incredible. Um, you know, it, it, is, uh, it is something we are charging for, so there are tickets, and those tickets have to be purchased. Um, uh, ultimately, um, what we believe is that people will be, will, will be very glad, very happy that they participated, uh, uh, because they will measure it in terms of productivity. And ultimately, what we're trying to do is the easy way that we refer to it is we're trying to deliver uh, about three months worth of meetings in three half days. Even the, even the approach of using half days means that people can, um, can commit those half days without losing uh, anything relating to their ongoing work. They can spend the rest of that, that day doing, doing their other work, having their other meetings, um, and, and not have to completely uh, go away, you know, uh, for, for three days while they're doing this. So we think we've designed it in a way um, that makes sense, that will work. We think it's going to be a lot that we learn, and as we do iterations going forward, we'll incorporate that learning. Um, you know, we very much have a culture of learning and iteration, so uh, this is definitely going to be version one of the program. Um, but as a former, you know, as, uh, 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 entrepreneur focused specifically on technology and now integrating technology into, into these live experiences. Um, that is a very natural way for, for 
me and our team to operate. Um, so, so we're very excited about not only the launch, but actually getting this uh, first one uh, under our belt, uh, delivering what we think is value that, that people haven't experienced. In fact, a big part of what we've been doing over the last two weeks is really just explaining to people um, what it is we're doing. Those conversations don't take long uh, for people to get it, but what we're finding is that it does in many cases require a conversation because it is so unlike um, anything else that people have experienced. And it is certainly unlike uh, all of the other virtual events that, that people have come to expect as, um, as a very frequent thing now. Anil, it's no surprise that you're getting 2,000 attendees signing up. I mean, you've been quite the industry disruptor, kind of filling in gaps in the industry, which was sorely needed with these communities that you've uh, graciously given us an hour to speak to. As we close it up today, I'd be shortchanging our listeners in the industry if I didn't ask you this two-part question. Part A is, as an incredibly successful entrepreneur who has been able to find these gaps in industries and kind of bring significant value to the industry, what is your advice to other entrepreneurs out there? And part B is the all-important question that people are really waiting to get an answer on. What's next for Anil? Are you getting into other verticals? Two really good questions. So the advice that I like to share with entrepreneurs, especially uh, entrepreneurs that are just getting started, uh, is something that my dad shared with me uh, when I was first getting started. And that is the most important thing is to just start and trust that opportunity finds you. And I think that really dovetails with this whole notion of you build great things through iteration. Um, you don't need you know, to have a fully baked, fully articulated idea on day one. You need to have some sense that there is a problem or a new opportunity given how the world is changing um, that provides an opportunity for you to build something. Uh, but the key is to, to start building. And then that process of building is something that, um, that the universe engages with you on. Uh, you're not going to be doing it alone. Um, you're going to be doing it in the context of something far bigger than you. And that's how you create exceptional um, products and experiences. So my advice is always get started uh, and let the universe help you. In terms of what's next for me, I think I would probably have a clearer idea of what was next for me if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic. Um, I think that, that the effect that that pandemic has had on me um, and the business that I've been in for the last 10 years, which is the events industry, uh, is really to focus on uh, how do we virtualize Shop Talk. So even though I've sold Shop Talk um, and I'm in a transition period with Shop Talk, uh, the virtual build we're doing is through this other company that I mentioned, Persona Tech, that I set up two years ago to digitize uh, shop talk and grocery shop and now uh, its focus is on virtualizing shop talk and grocery shop and so for the foreseeable future that is my focus it's not what I expected to be doing frankly I didn't know what I would be doing given the circumstances I shared uh, relative to uh, why we ended up selling uh, shop talk and grocery shop to begin with um, you know uh, I have lots of other interests that I've been uh, pursuing uh, I'd be happy to do a podcast with you guys on uh, on, on some of those, I'll, I'll share very quickly an area where I've been spending uh, a lot of my time. I watched a movie uh, about four years ago in 2016 called The Man Who Knew Infinity. 
and um, and it was about the life of a mathematician named Srinivasa Ramanujan, yep. who um, who uh, uh, was one of the 20th century's most important mathematicians. Unfortunately, one of the least known. Uh, and um, and the story, uh, and if you haven't seen the movie, uh, I actually think knowing a little bit about the background uh, of Ramanujan helps uh, to appreciate the movie. So um, uh, I don't think there's any spoilers in what I'm about to say, um, but um, the story of, of Ramanujan is uh, the story of an individual who uh, wrote down mathematical equations and formulas um, that have been the premise of a significant uh, amount of, uh, of mathematics uh, during, for the last 100 years. He actually died 100 years ago. And, um, and when he was asked how he was able to come up with these formulas, he said that he had visions from God. It took me four years, but I wanted to develop a thesis of how was he able to come up with these formulas. It took me, this took me down, you know, many, many different rabbit holes um, and, and different areas of, of uh, research um, and, and inquiry. Um, and, um, you know, very, very wide range of, of things that I had to learn about well beyond mathematics. Uh, into areas as diverse as cognitive neuroscience, fractal geometry, quantum biology, religion, astrophysics. And I'm actually working on a paper that, that I would like to, when I say paper, uh, you know, it's probably going to be a LinkedIn post. Um, but uh, I'm working on something that, that I believe um, squares uh, what Ramanujan said in terms of how he was able to come up with the formulas uh, with a lot of thinking in these other areas and disciplines, um, that's entirely consistent with uh, with uh, how he would have been able to do this. Um, you know, the short of it is um, that our brains uh, uh, engage in complex uh, calculations that are native to the universe, uh, and um, and we have um, uh, little to no conscious awareness of those unconscious processes. Ramanujan had a particular kind of brain that's at the intersection of, of uh, synesthesia and savant syndrome that gave him conscious access uh, to this unconscious um, ability to process uh, mathematics. And, um, and in fact, I have found someone who is alive today um, who had a, a traumatic brain injury that has given him a very similar um, ability. His name's Jason Paget, and Jason and I have been uh, in touch on very frequent uh, phone calls, uh, and he and I have talked extensively about um, uh, work that I could do with him, interviews that I could do with him to help him. Um, he's already written one book, but write another book that focuses on uh, what we can learn from uh, from his thinking. So, um, you know, I have lots of very broad interests. This is probably a much longer answer and, and, and in going in different directions than you expected. But right now, my, my focus is on, um, you know, on virtualizing events, but staying true to some of those other things that, uh, that I wanted to do um, that represented the reason for selling shop talk and, and grocery shop in the first place. Uh, and, and I think I'm very fortunate in being able to do both of those.
Anil, uh, thank you for joining us today. You over-delivered. Uh, Shree and I are looking forward to our next conversation with you. We're really grateful to have you. And on a personal note, you're a very gracious person, and I'm very happy to call you my friend. So thank you. And to our audience, uh, thank you for joining us today. And we look forward to you joining us on our next episode of Consumer Engagement in an Omnichannel World. Thank you. And have thank a you, Anil. Thanks so much, guys. I appreciate it. Take care. The content in this podcast episode is provided for general informational purposes only. By listening to our episode, you understand that no information contained in this episode should be construed as advice from CPG Guys LLC or the individual author, hosts, or guests, nor is it intended to be a substitute for research on any subject matter. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by CPG Guys LLC. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. The views expressed by CPG Guys LLC do not represent the views of their employers or the entity they represent. CPG Guys LLC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, or inability to use this podcast or the information we present in this podcast.